You can search all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. You will not find a narrative section of Scripture that is more relevant, more applicable, and more parallel to the age in which we live than Daniel chapter 3. So Daniel chapter 3 this morning, we're going to look at one of the most well-known miracles. Sometimes when we think about the miracles of Scripture, sometimes we can imagine that the times of Scripture were just filled with miracles and every every time somebody turned around, some sort of furnace was being overcome or, or the sun was standing still in the sky or red seas were being parted. But in reality, when we think about the miracles of Scripture, there really weren't that many. We can look at this period of time covering about 6,000 years. And in that 6,000 year period, there's really only about maybe 400 years in which miracles were seen. And they come to us in different phases. We could think of it as, depending on how you want to break it up, either four or five eras. So four or five eras from Scripture were filled with miracles. We can start with the time of the exodus and the plagues and the parting of the sea and the leaving and that sort of bleeds over into the manna in the wilderness and that go- continues over into the conquering of the of the promised land. Then we can think of the time of Elijah and Elisha. We looked at the story of Elijah some months back and we saw that that was filled with miracles as well as the life of Elisha and that was another period of great miraculous activity. Now we're looking at the period of Daniel and his friends and there's some miraculous activity that takes place here. We're going to look at one of those this morning. And then after that, we look at the life of Jesus. And of course, the life of Jesus was a time that was filled with miracles, as well as the first half of Acts, the birth and the early part of the beginning church there was a time that's also filled with miracles. But outside of those, again, depending on how you separate it out, four or five categories, we have thousands of years in which there really wasn't miraculous activity on the part of God. But here we are in this one period of time in which there is great miraculous activity, the period of time known as the exile in connection with Daniel and his three friends. So as we look at this story this morning, I can say without a doubt, unequivocally, this story in Daniel chapter 3 has the most significant and comprehensive parallels to our day of any narrative in all of Scripture. You can search all of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. You will not find a narrative section of Scripture that is more relevant, more applicable, and more parallel to the age in which we live than Daniel chapter 3. So with that being said, this chapter that we face, this story that we face here is a wonderful teaching opportunity for us. This is the Bible's primary illustration of Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. We must obey God and not man. This is Scripture's primary illustration of that truth. Man says one thing, God says another. We must obey God rather than man. So in turning to Daniel chapter 2 this morning, we see, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 3 this morning, we see this same continued type of theme. This is now the third time that we've seen this in Daniel's story. And the process goes like this. There's a conflict. Daniel and his friends get in trouble. They trust in the Lord. The Lord delivers from from them from this. And then Nebuchadnezzar promotes them or advances them. That's the pattern that we've seen two times now. We see it this morning for the third time. There's going to be this crisis moment. The 
Children of the Lord will trust upon Him. God will deliver them from that crisis time and then Nebuchadnezzar will promote them or advance them as a result of that. So beginning here from Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, etc. There's a list of people there, the list of offices there. But now look down to verse 4. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So, Really no new information for us there. We're all very familiar with the story. We know that the story revolves around this mandate to worship this image or this statue that's set up. And I just wanted to begin this morning by looking there and just recognizing how man is a creature that is made to worship. And man will find something to worship and man will find an occasion to worship always guaranteed. The statue is set up and they are not told to come by and give an offering to the statue. They're not told to put in the plate to support the statue. They are told to worship the statue. And the same thing is true in our day today. Man has a heart that is made to worship and we will find something to worship. All the false religions of the world are testimony to that. But not only that, the largest category, the largest growing category of religious people today are those who you may hear referred to as nuns, N-O-N-E, those who would say on some type of survey or some type of poll that we have no religious affiliation. They are just as, make no mistake, they are just as religious as everyone else. Their religion is just secularism. Their religion is just humanism. Their religion goes by a different name, but they worship just like you and just like me. All people find something to bow down to and something to worship. You know the gods of the day. You're seeing it all over your screens and all over your phones right now. One of the major gods of the day is the god of abortion. And you're seeing people losing their minds over this attack on the god of abortion, the god of human autonomy, the god of, well, we put it this way, the god of death. And so we see clearly right before our eyes people worshiping the god of death the God of autonomy, and the God of abortion. All people will worship always. And so we see this in the story even from the beginning that we are told this is why the image is set up because it is going to be the object of worship. So now let's go back to verse 1 and let's begin the story proper. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura. So Dura is outside of Babylon. One thing that we're going to notice about the story, if you haven't noticed this already, I'm sure you have. But one thing about the story that we'll notice is that someone is absent from the whole story, and that someone is, of course, Daniel. Daniel's not present in the story, but instead this story revolves around his three friends, Hananiah, Mishaiah, and Azariah. And so Daniel being absented, that absence is has two reasons for the absence. One is an earthly reason that we'll talk about now. Another is a spiritual reason that we'll get to a little bit later. But the earthly reason for Daniel's absence was explained to us in chapter 2, verse 48 and verse 49, when we're told that Nebuchadnezzar promotes Daniel to be the head or the governor of the province of Babylon. So I take that to mean something like the prime minister of the province of Babylon. Once again, the the parallels here with Joseph are too many to even notice all of them because there are so many 
But the parallels with Joseph, Joseph also was elevated to the second in command in the, in the nation of Egypt. So also with Daniel, he appears to have been elevated to what we might call a prime minister type of position. So he would have been really second in charge in the kingdom of Babylon. So this instance doesn't take place in the city of Babylon. It takes place in the countryside, a place named Dura, several miles outside of ancient Babylon. So the reason for Daniel's absence, we're just going to assume, it's not told to us specifically, but the assumption is that his duties kept him from coming to this event. Maybe with the absence of Nebuchadnezzar, somebody had to stay in Babylon and be in charge there in Babylon and watch over everything. Or perhaps Daniel had been sent on some envoy to a foreign power to negotiate something or to meet with somebody. But whatever the case, the assumption is Daniel's new duties as prime minister of Babylon have kept him from coming to this event, which takes place in the countryside of Dura, a number of miles outside of Babylon. But we're told that the three friends are here. We'll read that in just a little bit. The three friends are going to make it be made up a part of this group of what we're going to see are leaders. Verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here we see this gathering of people that are here to worship or are here to be for, be here present for this dedication of the image or the statue. And we see that they're made up of this group of wide variety of leaders, all the names that was just listed for us two times there. So this isn't all of Babylon. It's not the whole population of the kingdom of Babylon that's brought here in order to worship this image. Instead, it's all the leadership there in Babylon, all the prefects and the satraps, and you, all, you heard all those names listed over and over. So here we have Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael all gathered here with the rest of the leaders. Now, the reason that they are here is because God has brought it about at the end of chapter 2 that they were also elevated to the point of leadership. So in a real way of speaking, God's blessing upon them has given rise to the occasion for this trial. Because they are now leaders in Babylon, they are now subject to the trial that they're going to experience. God's blessing, God's Giving to them of position and privilege is the occasion for the persecution or the test or the trial that they're going to endure. Interestingly, we read from secular archaeological records that they have discovered a number of Babylonian records of the day. And there are actually three names that correspond extremely closely with the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are three names that correspond very closely that are in the upper levels, the upper echelons of the leadership of Babylon at this time. We're told that um, Shadrach, chief of the court of the prince, and then Meshach was the chief of the merchants, and Abednego was head of the female slaves. All three of those were positions that are in the upper levels of leadership among Babylon, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are among these, and the reason that they're among these is because God blessed them in chapter 2. And that's the thing to see about God's blessings. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 48, Everyone to whom much is given of him, much will be required. When God blesses us, His blessings most often will lead to a trial. 
I don't know if you've ever made that connection in your life, but particularly looking back in your life, when you see the times that God has blessed you, you can usually draw a line from that blessing to a trial that came about because of it. Because, as Jesus said, everyone to whom much has been given, of him much will be required. So God has blessed Hananiah, Mishaiah, and Azariah. And as a result of that, they now stand in this fiery trial that we're reading about here. So this list of leaders here, once again, it's a comprehensive type of list. Listen to it. Satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, they were to come to the dedication of the kingdom. Now, this dedication of the statue, we're told that this statue, it's called an image. We'll talk about that just in just a moment. But this image is set up to be one that is of gold. We're told in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. So the golden image or the golden statue would not have been an image of solid gold. It would have been a statue or an image that was plated on the exterior with gold. The practice of plating the outsides of idols and gods was a very common thing in the Old Testament days. You think of, of course, the golden calf, or you think of other instances. Uh, for example, in Isaiah, we see Isaiah chapter 40, a craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. So it was very common for a type of idol or an image like that to be plated on the exterior with gold. And Scripture will often refer to that as a gold idol or a gold object. For example, the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus chapter 39 is described as a golden altar. But we're told in Exodus chapter 30 verse 3 that it was simply overlaid with gold. So this is this statue that's overlaid with gold and the connection should be very obvious and very immediate for us. Because the end of chapter 2 There was this vision. The vision was of the statue, the statue made of four materials, and the head of the statue was the head of gold. Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, saying to him, you are the head of gold. Now, once again, from last week, if we just ignore that number three, because God didn't put the number three there. This is all one story. So if we ignore that number three and we just read it as one story, then naturally it flows for us. There was this incident with the statue and Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue. There was this image of the dream. Now Nebuchadnezzar makes an image. So clearly the image that Nebuchadnezzar makes is connected to the image that he saw. There is a connection between the two that we must see and the connection is pretty easy to see. The head of the image in his dream was gold, and Daniel says, that's you. You are the head of gold. We talked last week about what that meant, about that Nebuchadnezzar was the prototype, the prototypical head of the kingdom of evil. So he is the head of gold, but the dream is all about how his kingdom won't last, and it will be crushed and disappear. Now he makes this image that is all gold. So Nebuchadnezzar is saying, yes, I'm the golden head, but I'm going to last forever. I'm going to go against this vision. I'm going to go against this dream. Despite what I said at the end of chapter 2, I'm going to go go against this, and my kingdom will last forever. And I'm going to show you that by making an entire image of gold, because I'm the golden head, and now this entire image, this entire statue, is one made of gold. 
So let's talk for just a moment about the size of the statue. The statue obviously would have been something immensely expensive. Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon, would have had the resources to make such an image at that time. But it was massive in its size. We're told that it's 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide. Now, if you're not familiar with the cubit, it was a standard unit of measurement in the Old Testament. It was the length of a man's, an adult man's uh, elbow to the tip of their finger, which was about 18 inches. So an image of 60 cubits high would translate for us something we can more readily understand. It would translate for us as 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So massively tall image. Now, those who are critical scholars of the Bible, those who don't accept the account as factual, would say that would have been impossible to build a statue that size in that day. They just didn't have the technology to do that. They didn't have the resources to do that. And that's completely untrue altogether. About 2,000 years before this, the Egyptians had built the Great Sphinx. Sphinx, Sphinx, however you say that. Sphinx. Which was some 55 feet tall and uh, what, about 250 feet long? About 300 years after this, or maybe just 200 years after this, they're going to build, they're going to build in Colossus, the Rhodes of Colossus, which was another statue some 160 feet tall. So man's capability to build large statues was, was clearly demonstrated from other building projects done about the same time and even prior to that. But the size of this statue, the size of this image is immense. It's massive. 90 feet tall, which equates to about nine stories. Imagine in your, a nine-story building. That's a very, very tall structure. Very immense, very, very massive type of structure. Interestingly, a few decades ago, a French archaeologist discovered in this area, about four miles south of ancient Babylon, they discovered a pedestal, 45 feet square and about 25 feet tall. And it's in the exact area of this, and they believe that it's actually the pedestal for the statue. So perhaps the statue wasn't 90 feet of Nebuchadnezzar, but like oftentimes statues are, it's a giant pedestal and then a statue on top of it. So perhaps that's what it was, and perhaps this is the base that has been discovered in the correct area, corresponding close to what the size would have been. But it's just the base. It's not the st- And you say, well, where, what happened to the statue? The statue was gold. It got gone fast, right? And the inside of it would have been probably wood, which would have deteriorated rather quickly. So that explains why the base would be left. But just a little bit about the size of this thing, this imposing size of it. Now, one thing that's interesting to note about the Babylonians, the Babylonians were, they were a society that was sexagesimal. Anybody want to know what sexagesimal is? It's not something you catch in a public bathroom, which that's what it sounds like. Sexagesimal is a society that's built on a system of math that's based on six We live in a decimal society. So our system is based on tens. That's what decimal means. Decimal doesn't mean the point, although it can mean the point, but it means that our system of mathematics is based on tens. The Babylonians had a system of mathematics based on six. And so that explains a couple of things. First of all, it explains the dimensions. Sixty by six makes a lot of sense for a society whose system is based on 6 instead of 10. Now, the other thing to make note of here, and this is where this really becomes spiritually important for us, is 
Nebuchadnezzar was the first leader, the first king of the kingdom of evil. There's going to come another king or leader of the kingdom of evil. Anybody know who the second leader of the kingdom of evil is? The Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar is the prototype for the Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar is the forerunner for the Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar was the first leader of the kingdom of evil. That kingdom will have a second and final leader who is Antichrist. In the same way that the kingdom of righteousness also has had two leaders. We have had one, now we have a second. Who was our first leader? Adam, who failed spectacularly in leading the kingdom of righteousness. But now the second Adam has restored the kingdom and will complete the restoration of the kingdom as our true Adam, the second Adam. But we're speaking now of the kingdom of evil. Nebuchadnezzar was the first king of the kingdom of evil and the second king of the kingdom of evil is to come. He is known as Antichrist. What's interesting is the scriptures tell us some things, some parallels between the two. Remember all these parallels that we keep talking about between Daniel and the Revelation. One of those parallels is the system of six. Because the Antichrist, like Nebuchadnezzar, will be known as six, six, six. Secondly, the second and final king of the kingdom of evil will also make an image, just like Nebuchadnezzar made an image. Revelation chapter 13, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Notice the parallels. The king of the kingdom of evil sets up an image. The image is to be worshipped, and those who will not worship the image are killed. Both kings exist on a system of sixes. One is the first king of the kingdom of evil. The second is the last king of the kingdom of evil. Nebuchadnezzar is the pre-runner for the Antichrist. Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Antichrist. He is the first of the two Antichrists. He is the prototype. That's why he is the golden head. His kingdom wasn't the biggest. The Babylonian kingdom wasn't the most powerful. But his kingdom was the prototypical kingdom of evil that made the way, so to speak, that plowed the row, so to speak, for the second kingdom of evil that is rising and is to rise more in the future. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.